Chapter 15 of Charles Simeon by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Closing Years The story of the latter years of Simeon's life is bright and peaceful. We have already seen how much the troubled waters of his earlier days had subsided. His gospel had not lost its offence, and to be called a sim was never pleasant, but he was on the whole an object of great personal respect in the university, and very widely influential in the church. The late Lord Macaulay, son of his friend Zachary Macaulay, took his degree in 1822 and had ample opportunities for watching Simeon and his work. Looking back in the year 1844, he writes to one of his sisters, quote, As to Simeon, if you knew what his authority and influence were, and how they extended from Cambridge to the most remote corners of England, you would allow that his real sway over the church was far greater than that of any primate. End quote. The life of the university was fast changing around him in the direction of greater energy, a larger range of studies, and on the whole better order. It is interesting to recollect that his long evening was the morning or the noon of life for such Cambridge men as Sedgwick, Herschel, Peacock, Whewell, Julius Hare, William Mill, Thirlwall, Maurice, Trench, and Tennyson. In one of Brown's recollections, occurs a notice of Simeon's reasons for voting at the election of a university member in 1829, for Cavendish, the second wrangler of that year, now the venerable Chancellor of Cambridge, William, Duke of Devonshire. In 1834 he speaks of the delight with which he had read more than once Whewell's Bridgewater Treatise. His own interests were fixed and concentrated immovably upon his spiritual ministry, but he both cordially respected the scholars and savants around him, and was respected by them. Professor Sedgwick held him in characteristically ardent regard. He once stopped the old man in the street to exclaim with generous warmth on the contrast between his own earthward geological labours and Simeon's fruitful work for heaven. I possess a letter of Sedgwick's, written to me in 1869, in which he recalls conversations with Simeon, and particularly his mentions of Martin. Quote, I have many times in private society heard Mr. Simeon of King's speak with a kind of rapture of his beloved son Henry Martin, and never without a faltering voice and a moist eye. End quote. When Simeon died, Sedgwick speaks of him with reverence in one of his delightful letters, adding the little incident, a quaint tribute to a great memory, that when about that time three lions were brought in a show to the town, the undergraduates dubbed them Whewell, Sedgwick, and Simeon. The record of those years of green old age is to be gathered chiefly from the letters and scraps of diary. Simeon never persevered long in diary-keeping, preserved in Canon Carras's memoir. Here and there occur allusions to public events as he watched them from his busy retreat. Thus he writes to Thomason, December 24, 1817, quote, The papers will tell you all about the death of the Princess Charlotte of Wales. She died in childbed. The whole nation was ready to rejoice at the birth of an heir to the throne, but it pleased God to take away both the mother and child, and the whole land was thrown into consternation. I suppose that no event ever penetrated the nation with such grief. At Cambridge, the pulpit at St. Mary's and the reading desk and throne were all put into mourning, and the day of her funeral was spontaneously kept throughout the land as a Sabbath. At St. Mary's, the Regis Professor of Divinity, Dr. K, preached to a congregation not seated but jammed. We assembled in the Senate House, and then walked in procession round the Senate House yard to St. Mary's. Every pulpit in town, too, is in mourning. Nothing but black is seen anywhere. Poor Prince Leopold will find himself a stranger now in this land, and will doubtless go back again to his own country. 
He has behaved nobly on the occasion and gained the hearts of the whole country. Were he to die now, there would be nothing but busts and monuments all the kingdom over. In a year's time, his name will scarcely be known. End quote. He could not foresee the long future of the advisor of Europe. In 1820, to the same friend, he alludes to the Cato Street Conspiracy. P.S. I never touch on news or politics, but the nation is in a dreadful state. You will have heard of the conspiracy to destroy all the king's ministers. In 1822, he touches in his diary on the subject of Catholic emancipation, and the circumstances are interesting as they bring him and his friend Charles Grant, an East India director, into one scene on opposite sides. Quote, November 19th. Old Mr. Grant, with Professor Farish, called on me and dined with me. It was a great grief to me that I could not vote for his son on Tuesday next, but I told him that I regard my vote not as a right but as a trust to be used conscientiously for the good of the whole kingdom, and his son's being a friend to what is called Catholic emancipation is, in my eyes, an insurmountable objection to his appointment. Gladly would I give to Catholics every privilege that could conduce to their happiness, but to endanger the Protestant ascendancy and stability is a sacrifice which I am not prepared to make. Viewing this matter as I do, I could not vote for Mr. Robert Grant if he were my own son. In the same year, he had visited Ireland with his dear friend William Marsh to promote their dearest common interest, the Jewish missions. He was now sixty-three, and he writes to Thomason, quote, Now for Ireland. You will wish to hear of my motions in my climacteric, more especially as my dial has been put back ten degrees. End quote and then follows a lively record of his Irish enterprise, which was begun and ended within eight days altogether. Quote, no sooner were we arrived than Irish hospitality evinced itself in an extraordinary degree. You, who know the precise line in which I walk at Cambridge, will be astonished, as I myself was to find earls and viscounts, deans and dignitaries calling upon me, and bishops desirous to see me, end quote. On his way home he stayed a few days at Oxford, which he had visited first in far-off 1783, when he preached to a large congregation at Carfax. He now saw Copleston, provost of Oriel, afterwards bishop of Landuff, quote, with whom I dined and held most profitable conversation. He accords more with my views of scripture than almost any other person I am acquainted with, end quote. In 1823 he paid the visit to Paris, of which I have spoken above, when he was introduced to the Duchess de Broglie. In that year he preached at St. Mary's on the law and the gospel, as courageously yet as carefully as ever. However, the sermons displeased some of the then university officials, and for seven years he did not get another invitation to the pulpit. But at this very time he records with joy the great change for the better in the university in respect of religion. Quote, the sun and moon are scarcely more different from each other than Cambridge is from what it was when I was first minister of Trinity Church, and the same change has taken place in the whole land. End quote. Just afterwards, in 1824, he is full of youthful interest in the large building works then going on. Thomason is told about the quote, immense alterations that are taking place here. Corpus, Bennett's, has built an entire new college which will be furnished before Christmas. Trinity has added a new court that enables them to admit into college double the number they used. King's is building a most magnificent college at £100,000 expense. St. John's think of emulating Trinity. A wonderfully fine observatory is built on the road towards Medingley. What think you of taking away Caius College and of rebuilding it by the hospital? 
It is probable that may be done. Where Chaos College now is, if it be removed, we shall have a grand museum. Yet wonderful as all this improvement is, it does not exceed the improvement in the studies of the university. End quote. A memorandum of 1826 is interesting. Quote, Last week three bishops did me the honour of visiting me, Dr. Burgess, Bishop of Salisbury, Dr. Law, Bishop of Bath and Wells, Dr. Jebb, Bishop of Limerick, and I accompanied them to King's Chapel and to Trinity Library, and spent about an hour with them. This shows how much Christian liberality has increased and is increasing. I am not conscious that I am one atom less faithful to my God than in former days, or more desirous of human favour, yet God is pleased thus graciously to honour me. In former years, I should as soon have expected a visit from three crowned heads as from three persons wearing a mitre, not because there was any want of condescension in them, but because my religious character affixed a stigma to my name. I thank God that I receive this honour as from him, and am pleased with it no further than, as it indicates an increasing regard for religion among my superiors in the church, and may tend to lessen prejudice among those to whom the report of it may come. End quote. To 1827 belongs, I think, an incident preserved by Brown. William Ellis, missionary in the South Seas, told it at a meeting at Cambridge in October 1829. He said that as he left Hawaii, or as it was then written, O-Y-He, for home, a native magnate who had lately visited England charged him to carry his earnest greetings to the Bishop of Portsmouth. He was assured that such a dignitary did not exist, but he was certain of the man and described his venerable appearance and the occasion on which he had seen him. Just before he and other Hawaiians had sailed from Portsmouth, leaving their king and queen, victims of smallpox, in an English grave, the bishop had come on board to sympathise with their sorrow and had spoken solemnly of the Christian's God and entreated them to seek him, and then had prayed with them and given them his blessing. Ellis had found, through the ship's captain, that the mysterious bishop was no other than Simeon. In 1829 he kept the jubilee of his unbroken Cambridge residence, and asked a few of his nearest friends to spend two days with him, quote, in social and religious exercises, end quote. The diary records those days. Quote, the first evening was very sweet. I opened my views of a jubilee, like the prodigal, whose joy would be not only tempered by, but almost wholly consist in a retrospective shame and prospective determination through grace to avoid in future the evils from which God's free mercy, founded on the atonement, has delivered us. It was proclaimed on the Day of Atonement, See Leviticus 25, verse 9. The second day we met at eleven o'clock. I read some portions of scripture and prayed for the divine presence. Then Mr. Sargent read and gave a prayer of humiliation. Then Mr. Daniel Wilson followed for the universities. Then Dr. Steinkopf for the religious societies and for the church. We then separated for an hour. Mr. Hawtrey ended with thanksgiving. Mr. D. Wilson preached the lecture at Trinity Church. Blessed be God for his mercy, end quote. William Wilberforce had been invited but was too weak to come. He wrote a letter full of love and sympathy and closed with a brief comment on the past. Quote, the degree in which, without any sacrifice of principle, you have been enabled to live down the prejudices of many of our higher ecclesiastical authorities is certainly a phenomenon I never expected to witness. End quote. About the time of this bright jubilee, two heavy bereavements befell him. Thomason died and then another beloved friend, a brother fellow, Thomas Lloyd, Simeon says of Lloyd, quote, A more perfect character I knew not upon earth. He was preeminently dear to me, as being my own son in the faith, 
the very first fruits of Archaea, he has gone a little before us, end quote. And then he thinks of his own work and his own approaching rest. Quote, Through mercy I possess at present very peculiar vigour, both of body and mind, both of which I need for the completing of my appendix of six volumes or seven hundred discourses now in the press. I print and revise a volume of about six hundred close pages every month. Three volumes are now finished, and I hope to be out in October, after which time I have a kind of presentiment which I delight to indulge that I shall speedily be called home but I am willing to wait, and delighted to work while it is day. Never was my work more delightful to me than at the present moment, but I seem to be so near the goal that I cannot but run with all my might. Soon, very soon, shall we meet our beloved brother again, and join with him in everlasting hallelujahs to God and to the Lamb. But a long sunset hour of work lay still before him, in 1831 he preached for the last time before the university with no abatement of spiritual, mental, or bodily force. His theme was the revealed work of the Holy Spirit. The running text of the sermons was Romans 8, verse 9. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Daniel Wilson, Bishop of Calcutta, recalled these occasions in a paper of recollections written in India after Simeon's death. Quote, the vast edifice was literally crowded in every part, the heads of houses, the doctors, the masters of arts, the bachelors, the undergraduates, the congregation from the town, seemed to vie with each other in eagerness to hear the aged and venerable man. His figure is now before me, his fixed countenance, his bold and yet respectful manner of address, his admirable delivery of a well-prepared discourse, his pointed appeal to the different classes of his auditory, the mute attention with which they hung upon his lips, all composed the most solemn scene I ever witnessed." End quote. An extract from the last sermon of that course is given above. Here let me quote a reminiscence of Simeon, as he was seen in private at this time by his friends. It is written by that great Christian, Joseph John Gurney, of Earlham Hall, Simeon's friend, brother of the philanthropic saint Elizabeth Fry, and of Hannah, Lady Buxton. Quote, Memoranda of an afternoon spent at Cambridge, April 1831. After ordering dinner, we sallied forth for a walk, but first sent a note to our dear friend Charles Simeon to propose spending part of the evening with him. While we were absent from the inn, there arrived a small characteristic note hastily written by him in pencil. Yes, yes, yes. Come immediately and dine with me. Simeon has the warm and eager manners of a foreigner with an English heart beneath them. He is full of love towards all who love his master, and a faithful, sympathizing friend to those who have the privilege of sharing in his more intimate affections. To all around him, whether religious or worldly, he is kind and courteous, and by this means, as well as by the weight of his character, he has gradually won a popularity at Cambridge, which now seems to triumph over all prejudice and persecution. He is upwards of seventy years of age, but his eye is not dim, his joints not stiffened, his intellect not obscured. His mind, lips, eyes, and hands move along together in unison, and singularly pliable and rapid is he, both in his mental and bodily movements, quick to utter what he feels and to act what he utters. His conversation abounds in illustrations, and while all his thoughts and words run in the channel of religion, he clothes them with brightness and entertainment, and men, women, and even children are constrained to listen. It is not, however, the ear alone which he engages. While his conversation penetrates that organ even when uttered in its lowest key, so distinct are his whispers, the eye is fixed on his countenance, which presents an object of vision peculiarly grotesque and versatile, and at the same time affecting. 
nor are his hands unwatched by the observer while they beat time to the ever-varying emotions of his mind. Simeon, I preach to the people with a tongue, my eyes, and my hands, and the people receive what I say with their ears, their eyes, and their mouths. We declined his invitation to dinner, and had no intention of intruding upon him before the evening, but as we were walking near King's College, we heard a loud hallo behind us, and presently saw our aged friend, forgetful of the gout, dancing over the lawn to meet us. Although the said lawn is forbidden ground, except to the fellows of the college, we could not do otherwise than transgress the law on such an occasion, and our hands were soon clasped in his, with all the warmth of mutual friendship. He then became our guide and led us through several of the colleges. We reached the new hall of kings, just as the dinner was awaiting him. "'You see, I have taken leave of the gout,' said he merrily, as he leapt up the steps. As we were enjoying our cup of tea, our dear friend continued to converse in his own peculiar manner. We were speaking of the importance of universal kindness. Simeon, I am sorry when I hear a religious person say, The world insults me, therefore I will insult the world. They speak evil of me and deride me and mock me. It is with better reason that I do the same towards them. My dear brother, I should say to such a man, You are quite in error. When the early disciples were persecuted, it was to turn to a testimony for them. So it will be with you. The world will mock and trample on you. A man shall come and, as it were, slap you on the face. You rub your face and say, This is strange work, I like it not, sir. Never mind. I say, This is your evidence. It turns to you for a testimony. We spoke of his having gradually surmounted persecution, and of his being now so popular that nearly a 120 freshmen were lately introduced to him. He ascribed the abatement of prejudice to his twenty volumes of sermons, in which no one could find anything heretical. I attributed it, I believe with greater justice, to his kindness and courtesy, and to the force of truth. When we reverted to the subject of suffering for Christ's sake, he said, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Simeon, I could say to a Christian friend, I can tell you what is perfect religion. Can you indeed? Surely it can be no easy matter to define it. I will do it, my brother, in a few simple words. Perfect religion is to the soul what the soul is to the body. The soul animates the whole person. It sees through the eye, hears through the ear, tastes through the mouth, handles through the hands, talks through the tongue, reflects through the brain. The whole body is moved and regulated by an impulse from within. Let religion take full possession of the soul, and it will be found to actuate all its movements and direct all its powers. There will be no violent efforts, no stiffness, no awkwardness. All will be natural and easy, an unseen and gentle influence will pervade the whole mind and regulate the whole conduct, and thus the creature will gradually become conformed to the image of his creator. This, my brother, is perfect religion. We had afterwards some interesting conversation on the right method to be aimed at in the exercise of the Christian ministry. Although he and I have been accustomed to different views in relation to this subject, I was glad to listen to him, and felt that there was much in the hints he gave me which it would be well for friends as well as others to observe. Simeon. When I compose a sermon, I take a single text and consider the main subject to which it relates as the warp. The peculiar language in which it is couched supplies me with the woof. 
The series of cross-threads with which I weave the subject may be handled in various ways. You may take it up by the right-hand corner, or by the left-hand corner, or by a projection in the middle. While he said this, he was handling a little parcel on the table by way of illustration. But you must never wander beyond its true limits. You must not patch up your text by borrowing any extraneous ideas from other passages of Scripture. The ancients used to say, There is a man in every stone. Choose your stone, chisel away its outer covering, and keep to the man which you find in it. Canova would have regarded it as a disgrace to his profession had he patched into a statue even a little finger from a second block. Ministers differ very much from one another in their administration of religion. Some are forever playing tenor, lifting up their hands with exultation, jingling their shrill bells. Others play nothing but bass, always grumbling and growling. Don't you hear that Aeolian harp, my brother, its strings swept by the breeze, its melody gentle yet strong, varied yet harmonious? That is what the Christian ministry ought to be, the genuine, impartial scripture played upon and applied under a divine influence, under the breath of heaven. The hour of that evening was advancing, and these beautiful remarks formed a happy conclusion to familiar conversation. His elderly servants were now called in, and I was requested to read the scriptures. A very precious solemnity ensued, during which the language of prayer and praise arose, I humbly hope, with acceptance. I believe that both my dear wife and myself were ready to acknowledge that we had seldom felt, with any one more of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. End quote. Gurney gives some additional memoranda. Quote, I remember asking him one day what he thought of that anxiety and depression of mind with respect to religion to which sincere Christians are often liable, an experience of which he did not himself appear to be much of a partaker. As far as I can recollect his reply, it was to the following effect. When such a state is excessive, there is probably physical disease, or there may be some secret fault, or some difficult duty still unperformed, disturbing the conscience which then acts upon us as a tormentor, or there may be a mixing up of our own works upon the plan, and only a partial and inadequate reliance upon Christ. Yet this experienced Christian well knew what it was to mourn and be in bitterness. It was one of his grand principles of action to endeavour at all times to honour his master by maintaining a cheerful, happy demeanour in the presence of his friends. No man could compare him to the spies who brought an evil report from the land of promise and spoke only of the giants who dwelt in it. Rather, was he like one coming forth from Canaan, well laden with grapes for his own refreshment, and for that of all his brethren. It was on the principle now mentioned, that he was accustomed to exercise at his own house a cheerful, liberal, and sometimes almost splendid hospitality. He considered that, for such liberality, a warrant might be found in the conduct of our blessed Lord himself, who turned the water at the marriage feast into the very best wine, and who was accustomed to bless and sanctify by his presence the bounties of many a hospitable board. But the same Jesus set us an example of retirement into the desert for fasting and humiliation before God his Father. Thus also, as a humble follower of the Saviour, Simeon, in his private hours, as I have strong reasons for believing, was peculiarly broken and prostrate before the Lord. It was, I am sure, with undissembled feelings of humility that he sometimes spoke of his own salvation, as of that which would be the very masterpiece of divine grace, and of the probability of his being the last and least in the kingdom of heaven. Though often so hoarse as to be scarcely capable of uttering anything but whispers, he was the best master of elocution I ever met with, and most obliging were his attempts to teach my guests, my children and myself, how to manage the voice in reading and speaking. 
He used to advise us to address some near object in a whisper, then to speak by degrees more and more loudly, as the object was imagined to recede, afterwards to reverse the process until we came back to a whisper. His rule was that when a person begins and ends such an exercise in a natural whisper, it affords an evidence that the voice has been kept throughout in the right key. He strongly objected to all unnecessary heightening of the voice or exertion of the lungs, commanding us with paternal authority not to expend a shilling on that which we could procure for a farthing. He considered that a little pains bestowed in this way on his brethren in the ministry was of no trifling consequence even to the cause of religion and on this ground, polite and tender as he was, and full of the most loving apologies to those whom he was instructing, he did not hesitate to mimic his friends in order to their cure. "'How did I speak this evening?' said a clerical friend to him shortly after leaving his pulpit. "'Why, my dear brother,' said he, "'I am sure you will pardon me. You know it is all love, my brother, but indeed it was just as if you were knocking on a warming-pan, tin, 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 without any intermission.'" In 1832 fell the fiftieth anniversary of his appointment to be minister of Trinity Church. The parishioners showed the heartiest regard for their once-rejected pastor. Quote, October 1st. At eleven o'clock, five gentlemen came to present me with a valuable epern. Their address was most kind. Such a testimony of love from my hearers quite overcame me. I returned them thanks as God enabled me, and with a prayer of thanksgiving I closed the interview. End quote. At one o'clock he gave a dinner to 250 of his poor in the schoolroom in Trinity Place, King Street. Quote, the room was decorated with boughs and flowers. I implored a blessing on the food and on the company assembled. Mr. Carras sat at the head of the table on my right, Mr. Hose on my left. All the heads of the parish sat at intervals to carve the dinner. Before it was over, I went round the middle table, expressing love to those on either side. Then the heads of the parish brought me a salver, with something of a set speech, I return thanks with tears of gratitude and love. I am now come home somewhat fatigued, that I may be still and quiet before the evening service. End quote. At that service he preached from 2 Peter 1, verses 12 to 15, where the aged apostle puts his disciples in remembrance before he lays aside this tabernacle, that after his decease they may remember. The church was thronged, and the tender solemnity of the hour is recollected to this moment by some who were there. A sermon was printed immediately and given to each parishioner as a pastoral admonition to an affectionate flock. The next three days he spent, like the other jubilee days of 1829, in his rooms with his clerical friends, confessing, praying, and giving thanks. Sergeant, Bickersteth, Hankinson, Marsh, Close were of the company. Wilberforce again sent a glowing message of affection. Simeon writes to his old schoolfellow, Mitchell, now the third survivor of the boyish circle with Goodall, Provost of Eton, and himself. Quote, Who would ever have thought I should behold such a day as this? My parish sweetly harmonious, my whole works stereotyping in twenty-one volumes, and my ministry not altogether inefficient at the age of seventy-three. But I love the value of humiliation. I there feel that I am in my proper place. There you also delight to walk, and our meeting on the heavenly hills will be, I trust, most blessed to us both. End quote. The next year saw the end of his long labour over the publication of his works. Often before 1833 he had printed considerable sets of sermons and outlines, but now all these were collected, revised, and arranged. The last five volumes of the complete series of 21 reached him May 24, 1833. 
Archbishop Howley had accepted the dedication, and in June, Simeon was received in private audience by William IV and presented the books to the king. Marsh wrote him this short letter on the occasion. Quote, Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. Proverbs 22, verse 29. For example, Mr. Simeon at court. So the courier informs me, and I believe it, and therefore thank God. You have never preached on this text, and now you will be afraid to do it, not because you have not experienced its truth, but because you have. End quote. Copies were accepted by the ambassadors to be placed in the foreign libraries. It is curious, as a collocation of opposites, to read that Talleyrand duly received a set of Simeon's works for France and sent it to Paris. I have given the above letter of thanks, which arrived from Vienna. He was asked again this year to preach before the university. The vice-chancellor called personally to make the proposal, but the gout had pulled him down and he declined. Once more, as we shall see, he was to be asked and to accept, but then death interrupted the fulfilment. The enlargement of Trinity Church was a great interest of 1833 and 1834. All through these closing years the indefatigable correspondence was continued on very various subjects, on the problems of caste, stated to him by Bishop Wilson of Calcutta, on questions of the soul raised by many friends. His own beloved themes, humiliation, contrition, adoration, appear more frequently than ever in his letters. He writes to Miss Mary Sophia Elliot, Henry Venn's granddaughter and sister of the writer of the hymn Just As I Am, quote, I would have the whole of my experience one continued sense, first of my nothingness and dependence on God, second of my guiltiness and desert before him, third of my obligations to redeeming love, as utterly overwhelming me with its incomprehensible extent and grandeur. Now I do not see why any of these should swallow up another. That they are separable in imagination like the rays of light I well know, but that they should be combined in action I am well convinced. And again to her sister Eleanor, quote, While thinking of you in my carriage today, a view of this subject occurred to my mind that this very humiliation will give to our happiness in heaven a tone that will elevate us above the highest archangels. The angels can sing the air, but cannot from their own experience send forth the deep notes which will soften and enlarge and complete our songs. End, quote. End of chapter 15